Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. We had latched ourselves on to a star. If you don't feel like you're the best out there, you're going to get beat, no doubt about it. Well, you should have seen it that right from my side. I don't know if I was the greatest race driver in racing, but I know I could outrun anybody come on that racetrack. My next thought was to prepare the crew because somebody's going to get their ass whooped. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And I'm Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, I have a trivia question for you. Oh boy, go ahead. Who was the only agent ever featured on the cover of NASCAR Scene? Can't, the only driver agent. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but I, I could see the cover. Uh, who was he? Sure enough. Jeff Dickerson. 
Oh. oh. That Jeff Dickerson. Jeff Dickerson was on the cover of the October 1st, 2009 issue of NASCAR Scene. And the feature that Jeff Gluck did on Dickerson focused on Jeff Dickerson's representation of Kyle Busch as his agent during his split with Hendrick Motorsports yeah. and then yeah. signing later with Joe Gibbs Racing. Now, Jeff Dickerson. Where, where have I heard that name this, this week? Is this the same guy that I'm thinking of? This is the same guy that you're I'll thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is now the owner of Spire Motorsports, and for some reason, they got in the news this week. I can't imagine what that is either, <laughs> but it's a heck of a story. Congratulations to Justin Haley, who won at Daytona, came in, and was well, in the right was, place at the right time. And when the rain and lightning came back, Justin was in a position to win, and when the race was called off, he was the winner. Now, fate has a way of playing a big role in racing, always has over the years. Justin was not the first guy to benefit from fate, and he won't be the last. And he wasn't the last upset. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Dave Marcus winning at right. Richmond. That's right. Under same delay, same, same situation. And happens it, all the time. And some people complain that it shouldn't be that way or something, or they say more specifically that the driver didn't earn the victory. I'm sorry, he earned the victory. One of the things about racing that's always true, a tenet that is always true, to win first, you must be in a position to win. Absolutely. And these guys were, Justin was one of them, so applause earned, in my opinion. And his crew chief, Peter Suspenzo, made the call. And That's you right. can't take that away from him. Neither you absolutely cannot can. take that away from him. Peter made a good call. He's a veteran crew chief. He knew what he was doing. It was a gamble, but he knew what he was doing. Steve, this week we have the second and final installment of my interview with Kirk Shelmerdine, and he was very open about kind of the heyday of Richard yeah. Childress Racing, and in particular that 1987 season when they were so completely dominant. Absolutely. What was it that season? They had 11 wins, including six of the first eight races of that season. And in our second segment, we're going to talk about Davey Allison. This episode will be released on July 10th, which is just a couple of days away from the anniversary of the helicopter crash that very sadly took Davey's life. So we wanted to go back and kind of remember Davey. Absolutely. And uh, that helicopter crash, you know, I can't begin to tell you how much that affected what racing could have been for the years afterward had Davey lived. And Steve, we have new Patreon support. It was actually a pretty good week on Patreon. All we right. have new support from Jonathan Hauser, Dick Hall, Cody Lehman, and my good friend Scott Page. And Scott and I have been friends, gosh, for close to 20 years now. He used to do the BGNRacing.com site that covered the Bush Series. Right. So we were kind of together there quite a bit. And also, he is now basically the head guy over at J-Ski. Which has returned. Yes. I sent Scott a message after I got the notification that he had signed up on Patreon. It's about time. <laughs> <laughs> and he replied back, well, I have a job again. <laughs> so, Scott, Jonathan, Dick, and Cody, thank you so much for your support. Uh, it's helping us get down the road a little bit, and we're going to be making that big announcement here oh, pretty soon, yeah. and people are really going to like it. I think they will enjoy it very, very much. It's going to be uh, very significant. So help us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. If you'd rather do a one-time contribution, help us out. Thank you very much. We appreciate the support. Now, Dale came back in 1984, and even then, there were still some issues, evidently, to sort out with engines and stuff. At what point did you really think that you were onto something, where you were going to be able to compete week in and week out for race wins and maybe even dominate? Well, we'd won, again, 82 and 83 there with uh, Ricky and, and Piedmont car we'd won a couple of races several pole positions um we were in the hunt i guess more weekends than not we weren't dominating things really but our project was coming along it worked out pretty nice and we were able to get uh 
your project as far as building the chassis? Yeah, the okay. whole thing, the team, yeah. pit crew. Yeah, okay. We were we were pretty good pit crew by then also, and um, we were getting ready to change over. I guess by 83, we already made a change to Chevrolets, which was going to help things down the road too. And, and um, as far as we concerned, Earnhardt was the, like, keystone. He, he was going to be the last part of the puzzle, really, that, that – was going to make us not one of the good teams, but maybe one of the best teams. Um, that that's how we saw it anyway. I mean, we all loved him from when he was there, and and he and Richard had had a pretty good relationship already, and and um, uh, he had proved himself as far as championship caliber guy. Uh, and uh, you know, we did great with Ricky, but for some reason, we wanted to the the plan had kind of under underlying current had sort of always been we want to get Dale back and we want to be uh, we want to have good enough stuff that we can keep under him if he does come back as far as our cars and stuff so you know by the time that came about there's no stopping us we thought we still had a lot to do but once we all felt that we were going to we were all committed to it to each other and to the what we were going to try to do it was on now, you guys definitely had a cast of characters on pit road. You had a big bear of a guy in chocolate. You had Will Lind, and he was probably one of the most recognizable guys on pit road with the long curly hair. You always seemed to be pretty quiet and intense. You had David Smith, who was always praying for everybody. <laughs> How were you able to get all those different personalities to mesh so well? <laughs> I think that the diversity of people or whatever is what made it mesh we kind of filled each other's gaps sort of um what one guy was good at helped the other guy that maybe wasn't that wasn't his strong point so i mean we had like you said all these personalities it wasn't just one quiet guy that was so intense it was all these different personalities and it all made us one sort of family i guess and it all made us uh we each made each other stronger a guy showed up from sports illustrated which never happens i forget who it was reporter and they don't pay attention to nascar it wasn't a sport you know um but there he was and he says he asked me the same question how you know what makes you guys all works well and i, I said it's and i just had a son this was probably 1990 my my son was born in 1990. We were, so I'm, I don't know what year this was. But he's a couple years old. And we're watching little kids' shows on TV and stuff. And, and uh, the Rudolph the Reindeer was on. And this was a few weeks after that. I guess it was at Daytona when the next season opened up. And I said, it, it's like the Island of Misfit Toys. <laughs> And he looked at me like I had two fucking heads. And he, he, that was the end of the interview. He just walked off. <laughs> I don't even think they ever Now, did, see, I ever, get I that. I think they ever did a piece on it. I get that analogy. <laughs> I know exactly what you're trying to say. And was, this was a big-time guy. It was like Herb Dodge or somebody. Yeah. I don't remember who yeah. it was. But it was a big-time guy that was always a weekly columnist in Sports Illustrated. And they were going to do a thing on us, and they didn't <laughs> because of that comment. But it was like that. None of us were very successful otherwise in business, in life, in whatever. The thing that made us all work was it was us, each other, the team yeah. part. And the racing had gotten to be such a big thing that it took a team. And it, things could get out of hand really quick and go, start going off on wrong tangents and stuff really quick. If it wasn't a really close-knit bunch that everybody was of the same mind about things, it wasn't going to work, um, and I'd already seen that in the big teams before. So that you know, that was a big factor in it because it's too much work. It's too hard. I mean, you miss your kids being born. You miss them growing up. You don't spend any time at home. Still, this was even in the all through the '80s, we were on the road all the time. Now, who was the best poker player on the plane? Whoever had the most money, and that's Richard and Dale. You know? <laughs> I mean, they're, yeah, most of the guys didn't play. I played some. When we all flew together, which was only the first couple of years, that, yeah. you know, after Dale got his own plane, things were different and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, here I am with my paycheck on the little table in the plane, and <laughs> Dale and Richard are just goofed. They're just trying to outdo each other. They yeah. don't care that it's yeah. 200 bucks out there. Yeah. But, 
that's how much I make this week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I gotta, you had yeah, more so, skin in the game than so they I did. Play, yeah, I had to play a little different. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to say, but, you know, the guy who doesn't care how much is out there is potentially the best player. I mean, you know, you can't have, you can't have that kind of – you can't have skin in it in, yeah. in a poker game. It's, yeah. only, it's only the tactics. Kirk, what was the decision-making process like on pit road? Who had the final say on what was going to be done? Was it you? Was it Richard? Was it Dale? Or was it maybe a collaboration? On pit road? Is that what you're asking? During a race. Richard made a lot of calls. He, he was the main guy. I mean, this yeah. was his race team from the word go. And all of us needed that. Again, I don't think anybody else, none of us would have done what we did without each other or the, the right. main players of it anyway um so it was that combination of things that that made it right he had the final decision on stuff and if it was something that was a 50 50 and he had to just make a call it was him um but we had a lot of discussions about things i kept up with all the tires and this was back then it was bias ply tires and it was 15 16 20 sets sometimes in a 500 mile race and and there was a lot of variables. There was things we could do there to change the chassis around, gas mileage, mechanical stuff. So we had a lot of discussions about, about that that would – I mean, he would ask me things that would help him make a decision. But Richard was the guy that would make the call finally. You know, but he would lean on us for input, sure, and Dale too. Yeah. I mean, Dale's in the car. He, he, you know, he knows what's going on out there more than anybody. And – so you had to listen to what he has to say. He can't always just blindly do exactly that. But, you know, everybody had input. And it all, all that kind of stuff funneled through Richard there. And I think that helped him, you know, more often than not, we'd make the right calls. It was, you know, you're never perfect, but we support each other well. And it enables us all to make better decisions on stuff, I think. And to answer the question, Richard's the guy that makes the calls. Was that okay with you? It was perfect. Yeah, I I, okay. I, I could have made a lot of those decisions on my own. Uh, he, you know, he was the guy that had the whole picture, and he was closer to Dale really than we were. Um, and I'm busy with damn tires. You just yeah. you run the thing and, and watch the stopwatch. <laughs> yeah. I got to keep yeah. these tires straight. And you know, we all had our own job to do. And and I, again, it wouldn't have gone well as well. You know, any of us trying to sort of do it on our own. Nobody could. We knew we were a team, and that was the thing. That was the ticket. And I think that's what kept us together for so long and and was a big factor in how successful it was. You win your first championship in 1986. After coming up in the sport the way that you had, what was that like for you to be able to hold that trophy? Oh, it was unreal. The last race was in Atlanta when – yeah. And we, I don't think we clinched it until the last race for sure, but uh, and it was at some point during the race. You know, didn't have to, we didn't have to win or anything. We drove all the way home with the side doors open on the van, yelling out the window at whoever would listen. <laughs> I mean, that's how wow. fun it was, excited, yeah. excited it was. We weren't supposed to be there. You know, we, we figured we, we pulled off the upset of the century. Um, and... Yeah, it was huge. It was what we were there for. So, yeah, it was a big celebration, and that continued on up to uh, to New York at the banquet. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was fun. Those were fun years. Nineteen eighty-seven. You win Rockingham, and then you win Richmond early in the season. Then in Atlanta, you lead eight times for nearly two hundred laps, but then a battery switch goes bad. Then. You go on and you win the next four freaking races. You won six out of the first eight races. That's crazy. What so did y'all have? That up much of an upset. <laughs> you know, yeah, eighty six was sort of a was eighty six might have been an upset, we were, but eighty seven was not. <laughs> it was for real because we yeah. were able to pull it off, and we actually, you know, were improving on some stuff based on the year before. So, yeah, I mean, that was for sure our strongest year the whole time. What was it like to go to the racetrack during that stretch? Were you basically already etching your name on the trophy before practice started? Since then, even maybe a little before that, that's always been my philosophy about racing. You, you never go to race. you got to have their ass covered before you go. And the race is just running out the laps. And, and like, 
frosting. You know, that's just the fine print. We got you beat already. And that, that was the attitude, and that was the game plan. Now, what was that feeling like? I can't, can't imagine. It. Yeah, I can't imagine a high like that. 80, that's 87. Was it 30 years ago? Yeah. I've been trying to get that shit back ever since, Rick, tell you the truth. That feeling, you know, you can't. Wow. That's something that comes a few times in life. Yeah. You don't get to, nobody gets to do that. Like I said, you can't imagine the feeling. And it was silly because you know it's, it can't last. Yeah. And, and we all, especially the farther it went, the more success we had. And like, we're almost a decade there. If you're going to win a championship or races or anything, well, you can, but you got to beat us. <laughs> going to do it. Yeah. And how long can you keep that up? You know, I, it, it, you can tell it's how fragile it is, how yeah. how rare a thing it is. And none of us wanted to be the one that kind of would make a mistake or screw it up or, you know, we, we couldn't get anybody hurt. We couldn't – we all did whatever it was necessary to keep that, keep that alive, keep it going because we all realized how big of a thing it was, I think. People just shake their head. You know, and <laughs> yeah. That fed us even more, you know. Being that dominant, was there ever a danger of maybe letting up off the throttle a little bit? You know, we are so far out ahead that maybe we can ease up just a little bit and still kick their butts. As a race team in a whole, as a whole, I mean, just going every week and doing the points aimed at the championship, which Richard's philosophy, that's always been it. It's a little bit different setup than just trying to win a race uh, like the Daytona 500 every year you go to that one trying to win a race you go to all the other ones to win a championship uh, so if you know if you got to take a seventh place that day or that versus wreck and finish 20th is it's a no-brainer you know you gotta in that sense sometimes you got to take it a, a crappy finish or a not not as good as you thought you should have been because it's better for the whole picture to do that than it is to risk more and probably not get any return for it. You know, uh, if, if, so to answer your question, I guess that's, in that sense, you do back off and you be conservative. You, you have to go as hard as you can, but it has to be at a pace you can maintain. Even sleeping and resting is part of it. That, that's part of the competition. Competition never stops. Uh, but there's nest. You got to eat. You got to sleep. You got to be with your kids. Sometimes you got to. All of it's part of being able to do this for years instead of for weeks and keep it going. Um, so yeah, there's some modulating on the throttle. Sure. For all of us, success was the thing that made it work. If we were doing all this shit and didn't win all the time, or once in a while at least, it wouldn't be worthwhile. It certainly didn't pay enough. It, it was, you know, unbelievable. Even by the 90s, it was still 70, 80, 90, 100 hours a week job and not counting going on the road or, you know, being gone at night and stuff from, from, from home. But we couldn't do it that much and that long and as hard as we did and put as much into it. If, if we didn't win, if we weren't successful at it, it wouldn't yeah. have been worthwhile. It would have fizzled before it started, I think. So win was, was everything was the main factor of it. Who was the Dale Earnhardt that you knew behind closed doors? Because when I came into the sport in 94, he had literally just clinched his seventh championship. So I knew the seven-time champion who was rough and gruff and kind of held the media at arm's length. But you got to know him I was thinking about in the this transporter. more uh, talking to Dale Jr. a few months ago. And I probably actually knew him better after I left there as far as a person. Than, no kid. Then while he's there, we all had our functions. We all had our jobs to do. Um, and of course, you know, I started driving and a lot of things like that. And he he was interested. You know, we'd talk about things and and there wasn't this there wasn't the pressure that we had of we had to make every decision right. We were all business just about all the time. And of course, there was our you know we played hard too sometimes, and we did a lot of things together as a team we'd go on a fishing trip now and then or something like that uh you know we were very close on that level but it was always uh i don't know it, it wasn't always all business but we all everybody had their 
job to do. I had to be the crew chief. Dale was the driver, and we didn't really question each other on that. Um, again, that we were a team, and we were really tight, and we backed each other. It, it didn't matter what Dale did or what people thought about it or what the press was. We backed him on it. Uh, I, I told you the other time, I think it, if he backed it somebody into somebody out there in the parking lot in the van, well, hell, it was their damn fault for parking there. That's, that's the way we looked at it. Yeah. Just, just we backed each other, but there was, a, and there was a certain respect that went with that, you know. But we each had our function to do and, and our place, and nobody wanted to change the boundaries or rattle things. Nobody wanted to make uh, open the door that might someday screw things up, you know. So kind of we kept everything at a certain in a certain place um, and emotional stuff and all most of the time you keep that out of it well speaking of backing people up he was getting into some pretty heated confrontations on the racetrack back in the late 80s especially you had dw at richmond you had jeff bodine pretty much everywhere you had ricky rudd at north wilkesboro and i think 88 89 how much of an impact did that have on the guys in the pits on the guys in the pits yeah it was even better than it was great. <laughs> the more they hated us, the more we're doing our stuff right. <laughs> we weren't there to like beat our pals. We were there to take their money. Okay. All right. Fair enough. It's just the whole thing, Broderick and those guys came up with the junkyard dog stuff. Yeah. And, and Earnhardt was starting to be this, they were starting to call him the intimidator. And, you know, we changed from the Wrangler colors to the black of uh, General Motors and Goodwrench and, and, we were just part of it. Some of it is all spin, and a lot of this stuff is momentum that comes from the outside, and you you just try to use it to your advantage, you know. So they thought we were always these villains, and that Dale was capable of anything, and you better watch out, and and you never knew what he's going to do next, and all this kind of stuff. He's probably one of the most basic guys, people that know him. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff was hype, but, man, you sure could use it to your advantage. And anything that people thought was controversial, we just figured that's stoking the fire. So you didn't and, mind getting in people's heads, so to speak? No, it was part of it. Most of the time it was better. You know, if we got wrecked or something and screwed up our day, we didn't like that. But for the whole for the whole picture, you know, people knew they better not push him too far. Or they were gonna get wrecked. We might wreck the whole, might wreck us too. But you were getting wrecked. <laughs> I might wreck us both, but don't mess with me, you know. And nobody ever came over to the pits and started swinging either. <laughs> I think everybody thought we were bigger than we were, and we did what we could to feed that. You won the championship in 1990 and still felt pretty good about things, from what I understand, but. While you repeated as champions in 1991, you, you told me once that something seemed to be a little different as yeah, far as things going on at the team. Grind. We yeah. didn't really kick. It was a lot different than 87, you know? Yeah. It was like the, the championship that nobody wanted almost. And uh, we sort of endured our way to it more than anything. Um, but the grind was starting to show. Yeah. Or for me. Dale as time went on, was clearly being pulled in a lot of different directions, you know, because of all these business interests and whatever else. How did that relationship change over the years? Well, about in that time period, I don't know about, uh, the relationship didn't change much, but the dynamics of the sport, I guess, I don't know. All of a sudden, T-shirts is 10 times a bigger business than winning a fucking championship as far as how much money you can make. Uh, before that, you know, five, six years earlier, the the prize money from winning, the, the amount that first paid versus 10th was what made our budget able to work. I mean, yeah. we had to win races and we had to win championships. That was what kept the machine going. That was a huge part of the budget the income that we needed to race with it's expensive stuff even then uh but then here comes this you know the souvenirs and some other things that start end up being 
for the bean counters a whole lot bigger than trophies. Mm. And yeah. the basic yeah. thing for us was trophies. So now you got these two forces that are starting to fight each other. And, you know, I, that's a lot of money. I guess it can't be ignored, but it, it, it has to affect your decision-making somewhere. So maybe did, not in one specific thing, maybe not in black and white like that, but somewhere it just through osmosis, the water leaks in, you know, it has to start changing your, how you, how you do business. So did all that basically things. come to a head in 92? Not really, but that was, just, that was one of the things that the biggest part about 92 was we ran like shit. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I that's one way to put it. It <laughs> was the only thing that made it worthwhile and things were changing, you know, and, I, I don't know. I, I was out of answers. And it was on me to come up with the answers, really. And, and I was out of them. I was really, I was most of it. Was there a specific point where you said to yourself, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to go drive Arca, Bush, no, I didn't know Bush, what I was going to do when I quit. I had no prospects. Did you not? No. All I knew was I was done. At what point Somebody did you else. make that decision? Which? To leave. Driving or? Yeah. At what point did you decide that you weren't going to be the crew chief for RCR anymore? I guess the point was standing in Richard's office when it came out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I went in there to tell him that, but you yeah. know, it doesn't really happen until you do it, I guess. Uh, you know, I'd been seeing it for two or three years. Like, it's like surfing, you know, you're on the wave and you're doing what you can to stay on the board. You really ain't controlling anything. Pretty soon you're at the beach. <laughs> something's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Something's going to knock us out. Uh, not knock us out, but, you know, Richard's still going strong. And, and it's because of him that he is. They are, you know. But there's the part we've been talking about all day here. This, this, yeah. this thing that we can't really put our finger on what makes it work. We knew it had a life. It had a, had a shelf life. Yeah. And something... I don't. I didn't know what it was, what it would be yet, but something's going to cause it to dissolve. It's it's not going to be the same forever. It just can't. It's too. It was too good there for a while. It can't stay. Something's yeah. got to go, and I don't know what it's going to be. But I've been dreading it for a couple of years. But it, you know, for me, it came just. It was clear. I I, I'm start. I'm a new dad. For, uh, this was two years after my kids born. I'm I'm. I've been underneath one of those cars since I was 17 years old, and there's more to life out there. And I'm, this isn't going very well <laughs> either. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of commitment. It, it, it takes everything out of you. You know, success at that kind of level costs everything else. And you're either willing to pay the price or you aren't. And when you start wavering at even maybe not sure you're not willing to pay the price but when you're even thinking about it thinking about it when you start that it's over you know you you your 100 percent commitment starts to erode <laughs> and so i'm to that point that it, it, it isn't worth it anymore just personally and and i and i'm i'm i don't know what to, what to do to make a start winning either and we couldn't agree on it was another thing the among the powers that be were Nobody was sure. It wasn't like, oh, oh, well, here it is. Let's we'll fix this and we'll go and we'll be good. And yeah. Nobody had that answer, you know. And I didn't. Yeah. And really, I was the one supposed to cough it up. So I, I don't know. I just I had to quit. And I didn't have another job. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had a little shop building kind of like this, and I was tinkering with stuff here and there. But I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I couldn't do that anymore. When you did walk away, was it a sense of relief? Or was there a point where you maybe kind of struggled with, oh, my gosh, what did I just do? That part was had already been going through my mind, uh, like, oh, hell, what's happening? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, by the time I actually quit, I was sure about it, really. Um, yeah, there was a lot of relief, for sure. I mean, it, the pressure was off. I, I didn't have uh, – I stopped having trouble with my stomach. You know, I was just, uh, I used yeah. to like eat whole bottles of Tums in one day. You know, it was just part, of, and, and aspirin every Sunday. Wow. For, for years, I had a headache every Sunday. It didn't matter. 
Oh my god! Even after I wow. quit racing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. You, you know, just stress and pressure and things as that eases off. Sure, yeah, things change, and um, you know, I, f- I felt that kind of relief. But I was already missing even before I quit. I was missing what what existed a few years before that. You know, the everything going great and being on top of the world like we just talked about a few minutes ago. That was already kind of going. I mean, we we didn't even win a race. We wouldn't have, if except for the 600 race, the World 600 being 600 miles, we wouldn't have won a race in 92. We almost, I think we went home from Michigan, didn't qualify, or the points was the only reason we yeah. took a provisional. Yeah. In front of Detroit, in front of our sponsors. Ooh, Couldn't even go yeah. fast enough to get in a race. You know, sometimes that happens, but we didn't know why. <laughs> yeah. Or we couldn't agree why. The coast was, the, the path was plain for me. And, and yeah, there was some relief and there was some regret, both. But kind of like the, the, the regret part or the missing the era, missing the things that we had already done, that part had already been come and gone. I mean, you know, that's yeah. already years ago when we were yeah. 91. As we said, 91 was a whole lot different championship than 87 was or 86. And that's just, what, we five just years, four years? To, yeah. yeah. And the, the sport was light years different in that five or six years, the amount wow. that it changed. and. So was the race team, and so was everything. So was the whole business of stock car racing. Kirk, you eventually won three ARCA races, one in Atlanta and a couple at Charlotte. You also qualified for the 2006 Daytona 500, which was a bigger deal for you? Oh, for sure. They, I mean, winning any time when you're in a car race, that's what you go for. So, I mean, they're all big. I, mean, I can remember each of them, even right here at the stadium, uh, or sportsman races, or... ARCA races, you know, I guess each one of those, is, it's a little bit bigger league. Uh, but, you know, in the Cup Series, that's the majors. Daytona 500, that's that's as big as it gets. Um, so, you know, yeah, that's got to be the biggest one. And then having a decent finish was something we're pretty proud of, too. Making it in was the whole thing that, that was the goal because that way we have a paycheck. <laughs> and that was <laughs> yeah. huge yeah. F- for us at that time. But, um uh, having a decent finish and you know that was that was big that's got to be top of the list and if the damn sun would have been out like it's supposed to and the track would have got all slick i think i'd beat some more of them (laughs) (laughs) stayed cloudy all day yeah Yeah. right you've also played some professional poker i love your license tag on your truck it says bet it off (laughs) how did playing professional poker come about I'm an amateur poker player that presumes to play at a professional level <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. And for me, that's all it is. I mean, I'm no pro, and, and those guys probably can see right through me. But I, the analogy I use is drafting at, at Daytona and Talladega. There's nowhere to learn that other than going to Daytona and Talladega and drafting. You yeah. don't get to that yeah. speed anywhere. You don't, you know, that's not something you can do on a simulator. Uh, maybe you can now. I don't know. But the only way to do it to, to know if you can run in that tall grass is go run in the tall grass, you know. So for me, that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And there are a lot of parallels, I think, between the two sports that I, I didn't know about until I started doing it. But um, are you talking about maybe the analytics? Well, you know, uh, assessing the situation on the track of, as opposed just the to the fact that it's big time, and sometimes it, it's okay. on television, and there's yeah. sponsors, and yeah. there's people that back you maybe, and uh, and have a stake in how well you do okay. or not, and and then uh, it's competition at its purest. I mean, that's how I satisfy my competition, Jones. These days, <laughs> I guess is yeah. you know I can't go race. I gotta try to beat you in something, and it ain't gonna be basketball. You know. It, uh, so it's extreme when when you start thinking about how much money people are throwing around at that kind of stuff and especially in in the big leagues there's a lot of pressure and a lot of risk and a lot at stake and a lot of mind games and uh sometimes you got to fake them out and sometimes you got their ass covered and you, you can't ever let them know which it's gonna be. <laughs> yeah you, you know uh and that happens in stock car racing too. I mean, you you know, 
there's a lot of game. I used to, I, people talk about gambling and the risk and what you might lose or whatever. When I had my race team, I gambled fifty thousand bucks every week on whether or not we. Wow. Would okay. Qualify. Yeah, that's good point. So on top yeah. of that, life and limb. This was this was back in the day when uh, we didn't always come home. So gambling. <laughs> we're talking about dollars. You know, there's more of them. At Darlington Raceway, tradition comes alive. Here's Bill Elliott out of turn number four. Harold Kinder has the checkered flag in hand, and Elliott takes it and wins the Winston Million and the Southern 500. 70 years of racing at the track too tough to tame. David Pearson wins 1977, Southern 500. Come celebrate the 90s with us at Darlington Raceway on Labor Day weekend. And Earnhardt will win his second Southern 500. His sixth victory at the Darlington Raceway in South Carolina, Jeff Gordon will win. Mark Martin makes it four wins in a row. To purchase tickets, call 866-459-RACE. Alan Kowicki races off turn number three and back to start finish to take the checkered flag. Or visit DarlingtonRaceway.com. The measure of a career winning a Southern 500. Yeah, baby, Bring the family and relive the history. Richmond gets the checker and Tim Richmond wins the Southern 500. South Carolina, just right. So, Steve, we have talked in recent weeks about Richard Childress Racing when it was a struggling independent team. What was the final ingredient? Was it actually simply Dell Earnhardt coming back on board in 1984? Well, that was part of it, but you still had to go uh, a process of driver and team adapting, number one. And number two, for Richard Childress Racing to reach the point where it could supply Dale with the type of cars he needed to win races. That happened routinely through 84 and 85. But in 1986, I think the team came into its own. They won five races that year, and that, that was the most they'd ever won until And that, that was point. a good season. Oh, that yeah. was a very good season for them. But to me, equally important as the five wins was that they had 23 top 10 finishes in just 29 races. Now, let's talk about consistency, shall we? That's pretty solid. <laughs> That's very solid. And, of course, they won the championship. So, to me, that is the time it all came together for Richard Childress Racing and Dale Earnhardt. Steve, as good as 1986 was for Richard Childress Racing and Dale Earnhardt and Kirk Shelmerdine, you look at 1987, and that was something else altogether. If it had not been for that battery switch that went bad in Atlanta, yeah. you're looking at seven straight That's Winston right. Cup victories. As it turned out, it was six of eight. Yeah, six of eight is not too shabby, but seven straight victories. So, Steve, what was it like for that team at that time? Because you were there at Grand National Scene at the time, and you were witness to that era, and I can't imagine what it would have been like because they were very much rock stars. Oh, absolutely. As much as Dale was a star at that time, that pit crew was the star of the pits, okay? Yes, sir. They went by several nicknames, Flying Aces, Junkyard Dogs, but they operated as a cohesive unit, and uh, that enhanced Dale's performance and the overall team performance as well. Now, 11 wins is remarkable for one season, but I'm always a guy that says, if you want to win a championship, okay, have 11 wins. That guarantees nothing. Bill Elliott in 85 can tell you that. You're looking at a team that had the attitude, if you want to win the championship, you got to come through Welcome to North Carolina right. to do it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And like I said, they were a, co a cohesive unit, but they also were friends. I mean, they were friends on and off the track. I've seen it. I've seen them go out together as a unit to dinner and things like that. So they really enjoyed each other's company and felt confident. And each man could do his job on pit road. So I'm thinking that their efforts on pit road helped Dale and RCR win that championship perhaps more than 11 victories because I've always preached consistency, 24 top 10s out of 29 races. I mean, that is absolutely remarkable. And you just know 
the pit crew had a big hand in that. And the thing that I think is pretty cool about it is the fact that they were pretty different personalities. As you can kind of tell in the interview with Kirk, he's kind of subdued. He's kind of quiet. Right. You know, he's not a big rah-rah General Patton type leader. No. And then you had guys like Chocolate, who's this big woolly booger of a guy, (laughs) kind of rough around the edges a little bit, has that kind of persona about him. Then you had Will Lind, who had that rock star hair. You know, he was pretty yeah, recognizable. Yeah. You know, and then then David Smith. Who was, <laughs> David Smith. David Smith, a man of faith. I mean, you oh, yeah. never catch him at a bar drinking with Will and Chocolate, okay? No, you <laughs> would me. not. And, you know, so they had a diverse set of personalities, but for whatever reason, however they went about doing it, they worked very well together. That goes back to what I said earlier, but they liked each other and accepted each other for who they were. Then you add to that their ability and their confidence in each other, knowing this man is going to do his job and this man is going to do his job, and that's going to be just fine. Confidence builds strength. And then, Steve, after 1987, Bill Elliott wins the championship in 88. Rusty Wallace wins the championship in 89, kind of beating out Earnhardt, and they had some problems late in the season. And I think Kirk's kind of attitude was, how many championships is enough? When we talked for my book, Dell versus Daytona, he actually kind of spoke to that. He said, I've got a family. In 1990, they went out and they won that championship, and I think he was very satisfied with that. But then (laughs) then he made the comment in 1991 they basically couldn't give the championship away. Now, I don't remember the circumstances of how that came about, but 1991, yeah, they won the championship, but Kirk, I don't believe, was very satisfied with how they went about it. Well, I think that uh, also if we look at 1992, 1992 was Kirk's last season. Now, you mentioned his concerns about having a family and having a son, and the time away from home has really hurt that relationship in his mind, of course. But in 1992, the team only had one win in that season. One win in the Charlotte World 600. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, Will Lynn, as a matter of fact, I was speaking with him one time, and uh, at that time, they had not won a race. And uh, Will said, well... (laughs) After all the seasons that we've had, I guess now I know how those other guys feel. And I don't like it. I don't think Kurt liked it either. Nobody really liked it. And at the end of the season, they finished out of the top 10 for the first time in 10 years. Was he, what, 12th? 12th, 13th in points? 10 years out of the top 10. Now, normally when teams struggle like this, there are changes made. But I think Kurt realized that now – was his opportunity to go ahead and offer the team a chance to work under someone else, give someone else a shot. Now, that's just part of the reasoning in there. I think if you couple it with everything else we brought up, it was a good time for him to leave, which he did. And he did make that decision to leave. And I'll go back to the statement that he made. I asked him specifically about the feelings of what it was like in 1986 and 1987 to go to the racetrack and basically have the trophy in hand before the green flag. He looked at me and he said, Rick, I'll be honest with you, I've been trying to get that feeling back ever since. And that was a strong statement. I agree with you. And uh, based on what happened in 1992, I don't really think Kirk considered himself a, a failure. I don't think that. But I do think that he said to himself, okay, I've had success here. And for us to have more success, maybe it's time for someone else to step in. And I have other things I want to do as well. So Andy Petrie comes in right? and it wasn't exactly easy going for him when he came on board, because I think within the team, there was a certain sense of we've won six championships. What have you done? This is the way we've always done it. So what can you tell us there, buddy? Yeah, yeah, that's always uh, something a new crew chief with a, a successful team has to face. But I think Andy adapted pretty well. I mean, Richard Childress Racing was no slouch after 1993. Well, they won championships in 1993, sure. and then Dell won his seventh in 1994. So what does that tell you? I think the adaptation between Andy Petrie and the rest of the team went very well. 
So Kirk had basically gotten into the sport to be a driver. He yeah. didn't make any bones about it. He wanted to be a driver and he had the baby grand car. And I think he'd run some sportsman races along the way. He actually said he didn't have a plan. When he went into Richard Childress's office and told him that he was leaving, he didn't have a driving career in mind necessarily. But he did wind up, he won three ARCA races, and then he made the field for the 2006 Daytona 500. And Steve, <laughs> he has also, in recent years, played professional poker. How about that? But he actually won a pot, I think, one pot of like sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars $17,000. I kind of laughed, and I mentioned it last week. I kind of had to laugh when I saw his license tag. His license tag says, bet it all. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He did. When he went into ARCA, when he went into running his cup team, he bet it all. I tell you what, uh, you know, a good question might be, how does a crew chief career prepare you to go out and play poker? Let me bring this up to you, Rick. How many times have we used the word gamble when the pit crew yes. uh, is making a move? And that gamble comes on the part of the crew chief. Two tires, four tires. No gas, more gas. Stay in, stay out. The gamble is on the crew chief. He's used to making a gamble. In essence, he has to be a gambler to be a good crew chief. Well, guess what? You can take that same attitude and go play poker because all you're doing is gambling. This time it's with cards instead of cars. Well, I think when you look at it, I think both fields of endeavor are pretty analytical in nature. Sure. You know, when you're on pit road, you got to kind of analyze what your competitors are doing and react very quickly to the situation. You got to look at the circumstances of the races. How many laps are left in this race? Right. Do we take gas only or do we put tires right. on? And then you do the same thing when you're playing cards. Is this guy bluffing? Exactly. As you mentioned, it's analytical in racing when a crew chief has to make decisions based on what's going on around him. Now, it's the same thing in poker. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Please tell me you're not about to start singing. <laughs> Our <laughs> listeners do not want that. <laughs> Follow our friend Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And in our second segment, we're going to be talking about Davy Allison. And Brian has several Davy Allison items in his inventory, including a size large Davy Allison t shirt with that just beautiful black and gold car. I know you remember that one. Yes, I remember that car very well, and I know race fans do too. So, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and also speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Check out that Davey Allison t-shirt because that was a pretty smoking hot car. And check out the entire inventory. It is fantastic. Steve, the July 22nd, 1993 issue covered the race at Pocono that Dale Earnhardt won, but on the cover was a tribute to Davey Allison, who had lost his life in a July 12th helicopter accident at Talladega Speedway. And this episode, as I mentioned in the intro, is going to be released on July 10th, and that's just a couple of days before that anniversary. So I really did think that it would be appropriate to talk about Davey. We lost Davey right about the time that I was really getting my feet kind of entrenched in the sport. I remember very well covering Richmond for his very last victory in February of 1993. So I didn't really know him personally. I was not yet full-time, but you, of course, did have the opportunity to know him. Who was the Davy Allison that you knew? I can honestly say that I don't know that Davy Allison had any enemies in the garage area. I'm sure he had disagreements from time to time, and he came into the racing, and this is a cliche, but he was a natural, not only behind the wheel of a car, but he was very outgoing, friendly, and he adapted to what went on in the garage area and the media very, very easily. He'd come up to you and talk. 
you know, reporters used to have to go digging claw to find somebody to, to give them answers, and Davey would stand there and come up to you and talk. I know this because I remember one time during driver introductions at Pocono, a group of us were just crowded around waiting for the drivers to come on out and, and stuff like that, and Davey, before he had to go out and wave to the crowd, came up to two or three of us, and we were sitting down, and he kneeled down and just started chatting with us. This was very rare in NASCAR, no question about it, but Davey adapted so well. I got to thinking about it. Well, why not? He's been around it all his life. And when I say he was a naturalist, because it just all came naturally to him. He was used to it before he ever became a driver. And Steve, we have discussed the 1992 season several times on this show, due in part to my book, NASCAR's Greatest Race, about the season finale that year. But I think it's important that we never forget the kind of year that Davey Allison had that year. In 1992, Davey Allison won the Daytona 500. He got beat up at Bristol, then came back the next week and won at North Wilkesboro, taped up. I mean, mm-hmm. almost to the point of not being able to move. Then he won the Winston, the first all-star race run at night, but he paid a pretty heavy price Knocked out in doing that, spent the night in the hospital. And then, of course, was the wreck at Pocono, where he turned over so violently and was so badly beat up. But even more than that, he lost his brother Clifford in a Bush Series practice session at Michigan. Racing after Pocono was one thing, but to race at Michigan... Yeah, that that would be a very difficult thing for anybody to do. So he came back from that and kind of got over the injuries, and he won at Phoenix and went into Atlanta and was the leader in points and then was involved in a crash with Ernie Irvin. You think about that season, and you think about everything that happened to Davey Allison. uh, Yeah, he earned his Hall of Fame credit that year. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, he was amazingly resilient. There's no doubt about it. And he coupled that resiliency with success. Now, I talked about how Davey didn't seem to have an enemy anywhere. In the grandstands or in the garage area. Well, guess what this season did for him? It was respect. And you mentioned that this season powered his way into the Hall of Fame. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Now, he earned, again, he earned respect this time not only for the way he was driving, but for being the kind of man he was. He was a racer. He might not have been a champion in 1992, but he forever sealed his reputation as a hardcore racer. Absolutely, and that, coupled with the respect he earned, made him one of the leading stars of that time. And I'll say it again, who knows what could have been if not for that horrible July day. When I talked to Rick Mast, for NASCAR's greatest race. He told me a story, and I've never forgotten it. He and Davey actually walked to their cars at New Hampshire. The very first Winston Cup race held at New Hampshire. Davey stopped and started standing in detention during the Canadian National Anthem, and, you know, Rick didn't know. (laughs) That's not the National. It's the Canadian National Anthem, you dummy, and, you know, that kind of thing. And they get to Rick's car first, and so they shake hands and they part ways. Rick gets into the car and is actually getting buckled up when one of the NASCAR officials comes up to him and says, Rick, we got a message, and um, your house is on fire. So Rick Mast has to run that race. Knowing his house is on fire. Knowing that his house was on fire, didn't know the circumstances, didn't know what happened. You know, I would assume that he knew that his family was okay and that kind of thing. Right. But then he gets back home to Virginia, and he's going through what's left of the rubble of his house. And evidently, this was a pretty extensive house fire. I believe it was a total loss from what Rick said. And he gets a call that says that Davey has been in this helicopter accident. And then the very next day on Tuesday, he and his wife, Sharon, are meeting with the insurance adjusters. And he gets another call. And it's the one that we know all too well. And it said that we had lost Davey. Rick Mast being Rick Mast, he told Sharon and the adjusters, he said, let me tell y'all something. We ain't got a problem in the world. Uh, you can do whatever you want to do. And that was it. Rick said, and I believe him, he said that he never gave that house another second's thought. Rick put things in perspective, didn't he? I'll tell you what. As bad as you think you have it, there's always someone out there that has it worse. His family survived that house fire. And for him to say, 
y'all deal with it. You know, the house is, yeah, we lost the house. We can build another house. Like I said earlier, and Rick realized, it could have been so much worse. What the heck is a house burning down with everybody surviving? That's, That's not pleasant. But what the heck is that next to the tragic death of a friend? And Larry McReynolds, I love that guy. He, <laughs> he's never at a loss for words. Never. And Larry wrote in the July 22nd, 1993 issue, he actually did the lead commentary. And in this commentary, he talked about Davey during the 1992 season. And he said, Davey said maybe he wasn't doing some things exactly the way he should have done them. And at Bristol, God knocked on his door a little bit and told him he needed to look at some things. He said he didn't really pay God any attention. At Martinsville, God knocked a little harder. And at Martinsville, he'd gotten in another accident and gotten banged up. Davey said, I still didn't respond. At the Winston, he kind of banged on it real hard. Son of a gun, I still wasn't smart enough to respond. But at Pocono, he kicked the door slam in. He gave me my second chance. Clifford didn't need a second chance because Clifford was doing all the things he needed to do in the right capacity. And then Larry Mack concluded, I'm not saying up to that point Davey was living a wicked life, but I think Davey knew maybe he was doing some things he shouldn't have been doing. He didn't have his priorities in order is what I'm saying. For the last year of his life, I think he had his priorities in order, and I think he honestly lived every day of his life like it might have been the last one, especially when it came to his family and when it came to God. Well, I think what Larry's referring to is there was a period of time, a year or so, uh, that Davey was indeed having personal situations. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Now, how he was dealing with those personal situations, I don't know. But obviously, Larry saw some of it, and Davey recognized some of it. And Davey finally recognized he needed to do things the right way. Now, professionally, I'm not so sure he's talking about that. But personally, he had to get over some problems and keep pushing. And he thought, as Larry wrote, that God was giving him signs to turn some things around. And eventually he did. Unfortunately, it it didn't last as long as we all would have liked. And I put that commentary that Larry Mack wrote I would put it pretty close to the commentary that you wrote after Alan died because both came from a very raw point of view. The emotions were very real. There wasn't any sugarcoating on oh. either of those commentaries. Well, I appreciate that uh, very much, Rick. It was it was very personal, as it was for Larry. So I know where Larry is coming from. When you lose someone who is more than just a driver more than just an acquaintance. It's hard. And to express yourself, you have to be digging in deep inside and tell it like it is. The very next race on the Winston Cup schedule at that time was Pocono. And a lot of people remember that very iconic image of Dale Earnhardt after he won the race, waving the 28 flag on his victory lap. And again, these pages of Winston Cup scene, they pay off with some details about that because all we see is the picture of Dale waving the flag. Kyle Petty was actually the one that carried yeah. that flag to the racetrack, and he actually had it in his car at the start of the race, hoping, obviously, to be able to honor Davey. But then he damaged the clutch in his car, and he actually had the foresight to ask somebody if they could take it to either Dale Jarrett or Dale Earnhardt. They were both running fairly well at the time. They took it first to Dale Jarrett's pit. And when it became pretty clear that DJ wasn't going to win the race, somebody from his team took the flag to Kevin Triplett, who was Earnhardt's PR guy at the time. And when Dale Earnhardt won the race, they didn't go directly to victory lane. They gathered there to start finish line for a prayer led by David Smith Smith that we mentioned. And Richard Childress gave the flag to Dale and he proceeded to take it on a backwards victory lap in honor of Allen and then waving the flag for Davey. Yeah, and that the story tells you how much the drivers and other competitors cared about Davey Allison just to make sure that the flag was in the right hands at the end of the race so Davey could be honored by them as he should have. It's just amazing to me to think what links they went to. And I'm telling you, they would not have done this for most drivers. As much as they respected him, they would not have made such an effort. And that tells you what Davey meant to each and every one of them. 
I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. So, Steve, the other day on Twitter. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Social media can be the worst pain in the hind end in the world. (laughs) But it can also bring some pretty good stuff, and certainly it did on this day. We had a tweet from Rick Phillips on Twitter, Rick Phil Phillips, and Rick said on Twitter, nothing like relaxing in the recliner listening to the Scene Bought podcast. Glass of iced tea and a fan, eyes closed remembering the history of NASCAR and learning so much from around the sport. If you don't support it, you should. Amazing work. Let's save our NASCAR history. That sounds almost pretty doggone close to a Joe Whitlock tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very good thing. a boy, Phil. Phil, thank you so much for your support on Patreon. Thank you for your support on social media. You'll never know what that kind of encouragement means to us. I've got an image of Phil on that recliner now with his iced tea, his eyes are closed, and he is smiling. By the same token, I kind of have an image. He's almost ready to doze off. He's listening to the scene vault, and I come out with one of my dumb cackles or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Wakes him right up. Follow us on Twitter at the scene vault. And also, we mentioned it in the intro. Stay tuned for that announcement. It's coming up pretty soon. It's going to be a very cool announcement. You guys are going to be blown away.